What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Brenda. Hey. So what do you know about Abner Mares? Absolutely nothing. Well, I didn't know anything either until recently when I checked out Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mares. So now I know that Mares is a world champion boxer. He represented Mexico in the Olympics. He recently became a U.S. citizen. He's now doing boxing commentary on Showtime, and he is a big-time family man. So on the show... You'll hear from Abner, you'll hear from his family, fellow athletes, other people who made him the boxer and the man that he is. They chat about topics like the state of boxing today, Abner's journey from a kid on the streets to boxing champ, and the intersection of sport, music, culture, and family. And I mean, this is pretty cool. On the second episode, it's Abner talking to LL Cool J about the effect of his song, Mama Said Knock You Out, in the boxing world. So, I mean, that's, that's good content. So listen to On the Hook with Abner Mares wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. Que bueno. Hey, flamethrowers. How are you? It's Brenda here and I get to drive the bus this week joined by Jessica and Lindsay. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about what's fair. They say all's fair in love and war, but what about the intense desire to police the boundaries of fairness in sport? Anytime you start poking at this at all, it becomes way more arbitrary. Like what counts as doping? Who decides that? For what reason? And who gets punished, which is a huge one, right? And we see- Before we get to our show this week, I want to ask my co-hosts, what is getting you through this shit? What kind of distraction in these dark times are you finding solace in? Lindsay. Um, as usual, it is my reality TV. Um, Married at First Sight has become my new obsession. I love Amelia and Bennett. And if you would like to talk with me about them, please do reach out. My DMs are open. And also, The Bachelorette has restarted. So, you know what? Life isn't all bad. The season that it all blows up. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, except I've seen a lot of commercials <laughs> for The Bachelorette. I'm very excited to see it blow up. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jessica, blow up. what about you? Uh, <laughs> in my family, I'm very famous for this. I really enjoy watching Jane Austen adaptations whenever I'm stressed or sad or anything like that. So I recently watched the Emma Thompson Sense and Sensibility, which has the best scene at the end. Anyone who's seen it knows what I mean. And then my very controversial take here is that Keira Knightley's Pride and Prejudice is the best one. And I have watched that one so much in my life that everyone in my family knows when to not talk to me based on what scene is on the screen. So I'm, I'm still doing that a lot. I have finally taken the bold move of paying for the New York Times crossword puzzle on my phone yes. and the spelling bee and the mini. And I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but my brain just stops to think about that stuff and it's kind of wonderful. I'd like to introduce the relationship 
between sports and our bigger ideas of fairness and justice. We imagine, and I'm saying we as, you know, fans and players and spectators and even passing people, we think about sports as a place where things might be more fair than in other aspects of life. And we talk so much on the show about how unfair sports can be, but it still, I still think there's something undeniable about the fact that someone like Simone Biles, for example, can't just be marginalized in sports, or at least not very easily, because there are measurables, there are spectators, expectations, and because people who understand and love the excellence, they just aren't gonna be denied that type of talent. So I wanna think about what's fair, what keeps us watching and talking about sports and how it becomes a metaphor for larger issues in life. I don't think that it's surprising or accidental that we, we talk about things like fair ball or fair game, that we use sports metaphors when we're talking about other things. So I wanna open up with a general question to my co-hosts. What are kind of issues or cases of fairness that have fascinated you in your sports life? Jessica? Yeah, well, everyone knows I live in Austin, Texas, and this is the home of Lance Armstrong. And so I went on that entire journey which was really a journey. Like we as a city had to deal with that. I mean, in the book that I just wrote, The Loving Sports, I set up the doping chapter around like something like 40,000 people going downtown to celebrate his sixth tour victory. We had all the stuff named after him. And then as a city, we had to figure out like what to do with him once all the stuff came out. So that was a huge one. And then of course, tennis is my favorite. And the 2004 US Open is super famous quarterfinals Jennifer Capriotti beats Serena Williams but they end up apologizing to Serena because of how many mistakes errors were made that essentially cost her that and it's the reason that tennis now has Hawkeye like Serena getting all these terrible calls is the reason that this technology exists within the sport so I remember that very clearly as a moment of like what is fair here and how do you rectify something like that? Once once the un, unfairness is done, the injustice has occurred, it becomes a whole nother conversation. You know, what do you do with all the people that competed against Lance Armstrong? How do you... How do you well, they were all that? doping too. So that's part... <laughs> yeah. I mean, and honestly, uh, most fair of them enough. were doping. So that's part of the discussion is like, did he have to dope in order for it to be fair? That's its own unwinding spool of thought, right? Like how you get through that. Lynn? Staying on the tennis stage you know one of the things is always the on-court versus off-court coaching debate in tennis in no other sports do we see athletes as weak because the coach has to call a timeout and actually do their job and coach during games but for somehow in tennis it's like this really frowned upon thing for players to get any sort of direction or advisement during the match it's seen as like it takes away the purity of the sport for some people and of course there was a famous um you know with serena with patrick uh, mortaglu her coach giving her signals that she wasn't even asking for you know while he was in the stands during her match and then serena being penalized for that and of course the wta the women's tennis association does allow during most of their tour events on court coaching and allow that to be mic'd up um, but it's not allowed at the slams, and a lot of people don't like it because they think it makes the women look weak compared to the men. I think it's entertaining, though, and I just don't see coaching as this, like, horrific impurity, but the debate rages on. 
And for me, it's always been the kind of seminal moment of thinking about fairness is Diego Maradona's Hand of God, which occurred in a soccer match between England and Argentina when Diego Maradona cheats in the quarterfinals in 1986 World Cup in Mexico. He punches a goal in that counts and advances Argentina. And Maradona said after the match that the goal was scored with a little bit of his head and a little bit of the hand of God. So it infuriates me on many levels and my feelings about Maradona are not secret. However, England had just waged a very unjust war against Argentina, had historically taken advantage of them economically at every turn in the 20th century and had themselves dubiously won the 1966 World Cup because of notorious ref calls against Brazil and the rest of the South American sides. So fair, I mean, on some level, if there's like a big picture of fairness, I it, it's gross to see it. It's gross to see the way he could just lie. And he knows that he did it. And he just, just seamlessly is just like, this is great, you know? And you're watching it and you're just like, oh. But at the same time, is it fair that England advanced? Urgh. I'm just not sure. I want to kind of think about some of the categories of fairness and cheating. And I want to start with something that fascinates us here at Burn It All Down, doping. And our resident inquisitor on this issue, Jessica, how do you think about doping and fairness? Yeah, well, I used to think of it in a super righteous way that like you either doped or you didn't and it was clear and you were guilty or not or you're cheating or not. And one of the things over the last few years, which you guys have had to contend with, is the fact that I have learned that anytime you start poking at this at all, it becomes way more arbitrary. Like what counts as doping? Who decides that? For what reason? And who gets punished, which is a huge one, right? And we see it used against people in ways that are bad. But the one that really sticks with me and sort of how even as fans, we have really particular ways in which we think about doping. I think about Balco, which is the famous steroids case out of the Bay Area. Uh, And for me, I always think of baseball. Those are baseball players who got in trouble. But when doing research for the book, I learned that there were a ton of football players who are also doping. And that's in the news. Like It's not as if it's unreported. But what we picked up as a culture and cared about We're the baseball players because it is all tied to our idea of purity in the game. And baseball has all this shit tied to it. And in football, we're just kind of into the brutality. So we have a different way that we measure which one is bad and which one is good, even though they're both doing the same thing. And so that was really clear to me that like this isn't just what people are ingesting and what they're using. It's the context in which that's happening. Yeah. And I think there's something about expecting football players to aspire to a certain size. And, and when you see changes with a body like Barry Bonds, so the I- ideal body for each sport certainly plays into that. And we know it's racialized. So Absolutely. Uh, Linz. Yeah, I mean, I always think about the Sharapova case, which to me was one of the most interesting. You know, she took this drug called meldonium, which had been legal for about a decade that went while she was taking it. And then it was banned at the end of 2015 in tennis. She didn't kind of open the necessary attachment that told people about the new updated drug bans in tennis. And so she didn't know and she took it at the Australian Open. And she tested positive because she wasn't trying to hide it. She thought it was still legal. And of course, she ended up being suspended for two years. And, you know, when she came back, you know, 
I mean, she was already on the decline. Her shoulder was held together literally by tape by the end of her career. But, you know, it was always an interesting case because I think meldonium did help athletes and it was taken a lot in Russia. It also was prescribed for heart conditions and um, it also had been legal for 10 years. So something being okay to take one day and then literally illegal you know, and worthy of a ban the next day is really also fascinating to me. (laughs) Like, where do we draw that line? And it was literally the switch over from 2015 to 2016 in the tennis world. So just how things can change and how really when it comes to things like doping, like intention is pretty irrelevant, you know? And Mm -hmm. there are people who will always see Maria Sharapova now as a doper. They think of her entire decade use of meldonium as using a performance enhancing drug and there are some that see her as a victim of the system and i think it ultimately comes down to it's however you saw maria sharapova before it's just Mm -hmm. exacerbated by this Mm -hmm. and so much of this is about having an advantage that the idea is that there should be this fair playing field everybody should start at the same point and so this reaction the bitterness and the anger also comes from advantages and there's a question about cheating straight up so to transition from doping to to individual cheating and individual style i mean what is an advantage when it comes to parts of of the game that have just been developed collectively to have an advantage Linz, what about flopping? <laughs> this is my favorite because, you know, there are these rules, uh, you know, we have referees and rules on contact and everything. And of course, soccer and basketball, it's mostly talked about in soccer, but also in basketball as well. Um, and a little bit in American football and the NFL. But, you know, players learn to exploit the rules to their advantage. And there are a lot of them are very open about it. Like Megan Rapino is very open about the fact that she is the expert flopper, you know? And it's like, is that a character? flaw or is that just her being smart (laughs) and learning how to use the rules to her advantage I come down somewhere in the middle I think it depends on the situation for what I think but you know players learn to draw contact learn to get whistles from refs you know learn to play the game in a way that will draw the most attention I don't know if anyone saw in the WNBA this year was a big play where I think it was Courtney Vandersloot called for a foul against Diana Taurasi. And you look at it, it was literally looked like a wind, you know, a gust of wind had just blown over Diana Taurasi. Like she just threw herself back and ended up getting, you know, three free throw points. But I always think that's fascinating. And fans get very heated about flopping and about drawing contact and about all of these things. And I don't really have a strong opinion about it. I think if the rules exist, if you can trick it, then why not? That's part of the game too yeah it's part of a repertoire uh, a lot of people are sort of like you know leo messi wow like he's so much better than you know suarez because he doesn't flop around and he doesn't draw contact in the same way and you think about it and you're like that is simply because his game and his center of gravity would be thrown off if he tried to do that <laughs> this is not like a moral reflection he's yeah. not you know sitting there and thinking you know I would draw contact right here, but you know what? I love the spirit of moral (laughs) gentleman soccer. So you know what? I'm going to just plow through. It's like, no, it would be absolutely antithetical to his style of play. So there are are players that have put that in their repertoire, right? And that is what they do. So I find that whole conversation fascinating. And having an advantage as a team, 
often results in huge debates about fairness. And some of those include like illegal scouting, recruiting, you know, that idea that that the whole team does something to try to get an advantage over another team, you know, deflating balls and whatnot. So it's not always the player, but it could be the entire organization. What about those cheats, Lynn? <laughs> this is another thing where the lines that we draw can sometimes be so arbitrary. And I think of, and I know we might talk about in a minute, you know, drafts and stuff. Well, what if you are drafted to a team, you have the same talent as another player, but you're drafted to a team that uses every single possible thing it can to its advantage, you know, that has more resources and you end up having more career success because of that. I mean, recruiting is sketchy. Scouting can be sketchy, but also, I don't know how you don't do it. I, I, like, sports are so competitive. There's so much on the line that within rules that are set, I think you should kind of exploit any advantage that you have. Now, where it goes, you know, I wish Amira was here. The whole Patriot stuff, the illegally filming practices of other teams when you're not supposed to be in there. Like, that gets a little bit... Um, I think we're crossing some lines there. But I don't know. For me... Why would you not want to work as hard as you can to get every advantage you possibly could? Is that cheating or is that just being smart? Yeah. Is it doing your job if you're a coach to kind of press up against those boundaries? I mean, Marcelo Bielsa held an entire press conference when he was caught, you know, in the Premier League sort of looking at other teams and having people there filming. He had a whole press conference with, you know, a breakdown of, of why it was wrong what he did and how he was sorry. But what you learned in that was that everybody's doing it, but then you go like one inch more and it's too far. And it it was too far. And so it's kind of fascinating. Then you have issues of how do you make leagues competitive through fairness? So salary caps and drafting itself. So there's a way in which these teams are already you know, trying to game the game. How are you going to make things more fair? It used to be that salary caps were part of it. But in global soccer, the response has been, you know, let's then make an individual contract that is so tough that this person can't leave. So I don't know how fair that is to players at the end of the day as well. I mean, you both work more on the U.S. side. NWSL, WNBA salary caps and drafts, I mean, aren't they sort of meant to level that playing field as a league and make it more competitive? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of those things is obviously I'm incredibly pro-labor, but hearing people, you know, since becoming more in this world, I've, I've, you know, hear so many people talk about drafts and salary caps as being anti-labor. And those are the ones that I have the hardest time really grasping as being completely anti-labor. And I think it's because I just grew up with them being existing. Like the sports I watch the most have salary caps and have drafts. And that's kind of, you know, how your raise matters and everything. And I do understand, like, if you want parity, like part of that makes sense to me that, 
the top players would get to go to some of the teams that are struggling the most, and that should help turn it around. Of course, it doesn't always work like that in practice, and that can be incredibly unfair to players because a lot of times these teams are really poor because of institutional failures. And so you have some of the best talent and um, players, you know, who have maximized their potential in this way now get stuck in an organization or a franchise that doesn't know where it's going or what it's doing. And there's not always that magical turnaround. Sometimes you're just kind of stuck in sports purgatory and also salary caps. I mean, I think, I think you have a little bit of the same thing. On one hand, I love going through the numbers. I love trying to figure out how different teams and different, um, you know, how these different puzzle pieces are going to fit. But I understand, like, ultimately, you're probably hurting the top, top, top players because their um, pay is getting probably arbitrarily capped uh, in order to make room for the rest of their team. But at the same time, they need teammates, right, in order to play. Like, like you know, we say these are star-driven leagues. Like, I know Roger Federer would always say in tennis, like, like yeah, you might say everyone's paying their ticket to go see Roger Federer, so more money should go to him. But at the end of the day, he doesn't exist if there's not this huge tour around him. So he has to subsidize that in some way in order to be who he is. It's so interesting to think about, like, that sports are artificial and that we make them up and that part of what the artificial does is allow you to create structures that are more fair, right? Like to make sure that things are more fair in the way that Lindsay was just talking about. But then I also think it makes me think about the way that in college sports, the huge argument around one of the arguments around maintaining amateurism as a model is that it's fair, that if we open it, back up and we start paying players that then the schools that have more money will just pay more money for most of the good players and they'll all just be grouped into one place and that will somehow make the playing field unlevel but you can already tell that it's not like it's such an artificial argument but they've created this entire system to keep it in place right which is all about money and power and all that stuff but like we already know what the powerhouses are within college football within college basketball like players are already going there for a whole host of reasons some of them might be money and we're not allowed to talk about that but all these other things that are in place the money is still there it just is going into paying coaches who can get them into the NFL it's paying for these giant locker rooms for all of these amenities for all those sorts of things so it's not as if these things are already level but that's the argument right that like that is the emotional argument for keeping amateurism, that we have to maintain this idea of fairness that's lost when money is introduced. But as Lindsay just talking about, on the professional level, there's already all these artificial things in place in order to try to keep things fair. So I don't. it's so interesting the way that that gets like moved around. The goalposts are moving all the time, right? And they move so much when it has to do with race and with mm. sports and the way in which we have players that are racialized and what's fair for them and what's not fair for them. And that brings me to the subject of unwritten rules. And I I just can't help. I mean, it's not only Tatis and the recent admonishment and punishment of him for his home run when they were already winning by so much, but the whole subject of bat tossing, mercy rules, you know, ways in which you're supposed to tiptoe around an idea that things you know, have to be kept a certain amount of fair, that you can't win by too much because it somehow offends the sensibility. And that's so often used in baseball to especially, I think, punish 
both black players and Latinx players. It's so often, you know, racialized language about quote unquote showboating. And we know that's a racist term that's steeped in these sorts of performances and trying to rein them in because they can only be so good because if it's a national pastime, it must be somehow preserved by white people, particularly white men. So I think those unwritten rules have just been, and they still come out and it feels so antiquated in 19th century, but people are still, you know, they're still out there making 21 year olds apologize for being good at their job. And this just brings it back. And I think, you know, just to wrap up a little bit on this, there's also just determining fairness as a playing field in general. And it makes me think of global sports as well in regions and the way in which, for example, African teams can't get past the quarterfinals of World Cups, even when they're supplying all the talent for the professional leagues in Europe. And so it shows you there that like conditions matter and what's available. Jess? Yeah, and I think a lot about um, the way that fairness or cheating, that the way that those things get defined, it often operates to exclude marginalized groups. And I will just say, like, I feel like the most obvious example is Caster Semenya, non-binary, anyone who doesn't fit the perfect binary of sport really gets punished. It's easy to punish them, right? Because then we're able to tap into, again, I think it's a real emotional word, this idea of fairness. And when they don't fit these things, we're able to say, well, it's unfair, which is so just, what does that even mean? But it's then easy to apply it in ways that are racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and all these sorts of things. And people will just kind of nod along like, oh, it's not fair. Of course we have to do this. And we really have to take those moments and unpack them and really be clear about what's actually happening there. So just rapid fire. I just want to ask you both, what are the aspects, you know, with technology, so much is changing in terms of judging, cheating, fairness, etc. What do you love and hate about this moment of fairness in your sport? Jessica? Yeah, I love Hawkeye and tennis. Uh, I understand that it's not the most perfect thing, but I think it's really great. And I also think it's a great as a fan. It's fun to watch it as you see where the ball actually landed, but it does make it feel fair to me. So that's mine. Okay. Um, uh, my least popular opinion is that I like VAR, V-A-R. I hate red cards. I find it infantilizing and um, silly that you need to flop up a red card or a yellow card. You could just be like, you're out. That said, I'd probably miss the fanfare and the spectacle of the ref pulling out the card in some dramatic fashion and all the players running up and arguing. Linz? Yeah, I think it's funny we're all bringing up technology because that's like where sports are of where, you know, how mm -hmm. much technology can be used because these rules were not created with technology in mind. But I love challenges. I love coaches' challenges. I love having a limited amount of them. So that kind of adds a game within the game. I know a lot of people think they should be unlimited, but I – I do think there should be kind of a cap on or maybe a time limit for how long reviews should last, especially then the basketball games can get very, very, very um, boring and dragged on. But I like using technology to as much advantage as possible. But I also think it's important to keep in mind that this is entertainment, that we do want a lot of this to fit within uh, TV windows, and we do want to keep things moving. And so kind of use the rules to kind of balance those two and make using technology an advantage, but also, you know, more of a little bit more of gameplay. I think 
that is fun and adds another level of excitement to the game. A reminder that we are now coming to you twice a week at Burn It All Down because interviews will be standalone and drop on Thursdays. Our amazing guests just really needed more space. And speaking of amazing guests, this week Jessica talks with Latreya Graham about being black, loving the outdoors, and racism she's experienced because of it. They talk about Graham's favorite place to visit outside and the response she's gotten to writing about her experiences so publicly as well as some of the organizations that are connecting and helping explorers of color. I very much was not really embarrassed by this, but hesitant by this for like my face to take up a whole page in a magazine uh, because I'm like this slightly shy, reclusive writer. I, I'm just kind of like, no, but like it mattered to people to see, you know, my big nose and thick lips and cornrows, you know, and all of that stuff standing in this field. And so I realized that like my body and like my, the imagery that goes along with these things that I have to say matters. Okay, so even though sports had a break, your business didn't. Well, it's true. Our podcast did not have a break, right? Even when sports were off. Right, Jess? Yeah, we just kept going. (laughs) Kept going with the newsletter, (laughs) kept going with the podcast. We had to keep moving, and that made hiring more important than ever. And thank goodness, Indeed is indeed here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. This would have been super helpful as we've been um, kind of hiring producers to burn it all down. I've been getting some help with the Power Plays newsletter and really realizing how stressful hiring can be. (laughs) Like, I don't know that I fully understood before, especially in these times when you can't meet people face to face, really everything needs to be done digitally. So the great thing about Indeed is that you only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts, which I love. Right now, Indeed is offering Burn It All Down listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. That is amazing. So you want to try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is Indeed. (laughs) Their best offer available anywhere. Bren, what's that address? What is it? What is it? Indeed.com slash blue wire. Now you repeat it. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Very good. (laughs) Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st, 2020. I'm sorry. I didn't have it up. I told you to stay with me. I told you to stay with me. I know. I was trying. I was trying. (laughs) I know. I was like, that was one of those where I was like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't get called on. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Mine is, oh, fuck. I knew that I would be the worst at this, right? All right. Don't laugh. That's the worst way to prep me. Now I'm going to try not to laugh. Tell me not to laugh. That makes me want to laugh just because you said that. Okay. Okay. As an historian, I'm really bad at predicting the future. So I rarely bet, to be honest. I'm better at, you know, thinking about things that have already happened. Do either of you bet? 
I do not. I am a coward and I am really worried about losing. So I, I, I don't do it. I've done the slots and stuff and played a little bit of cards like in Vegas and it did not go well. It did not go well. But no, I do not bet on sports because I have enough emotions already. Yeah, in Vegas, I just tried to like look like I was playing the slots enough to get the free drinks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But now I don't have to go to Vegas because there's bet online. Uh, whether it's games, spreads, and totals to team players and coaching props, bet online gives you a lot of options to wager more than anywhere else. And you can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures anytime that you want. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Also, don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. And maybe if you can figure it out, you can let me know what it really means to have an over-under. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, the burn pile. We're going to take everything we have hated in sports this week and form a giant garbage incinerator. Jessica? So last week I burned the fact that the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, said fans could pack stadiums again, which was followed almost immediately by the head coach of the University of Florida's football team, Dan Mullen, saying he wanted 90,000 fans in the stands this weekend when the school was supposed to host LSU. Well, the game against LSU didn't happen and has been postponed until December. Do you want to guess why? You are correct. There was a massive COVID outbreak on the team this week, and by Wednesday, the game had been delayed. And yesterday, Saturday, we found out that Mullen himself has COVID. What a totally predictable set of events. On to this week's burn. Earlier this summer, in mid-June, the football players at the University of Texas, where I am a student and currently pay tuition, demanded changes from the university, and they threatened to no longer participate in recruiting unless those changes happened. They wanted money donated to organizations that are working towards racial justice, renaming a part of the stadium after the first black man to play for the team, Julius Whittier, renaming of buildings that were named in honor of white supremacists, and they wanted the school to stop using the song The Eyes of Texas as its school song. In short, The Eyes of Texas is a phrase that William Prather, the university president at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, paraphrased from The Eyes of the South Are Upon You, which was Robert E. Lee's favorite saying when he was president of Washington College in Virginia, where Prather went to law school. And then when the phrase was made into a song crafted by two students, it debuted in 1903 at an annual campus minstrel show. Its entire creation is racist. In July, the president of the university, my university, announced some changes like renaming the field after Earl Campbell and Ricky Williams, two Longhorns, The only two Longhorns ever win the Heisman, both black men. Whittier is going to get a statue. Some buildings are going to be renamed, but the eyes of Texas will remain. Earlier this month, the president told everyone he was, of course, creating a committee to examine the racist history of the song. My dude, just read an article. This has all bubbled up recently because the team has not been staying on the field to stand with their hands up in the traditional Longhorn symbol at the end of the games. But last weekend, they lost a four-overtime near comeback against their arch-rivals, the Sooners, at the Cotton Bowl, which has its own racist 
name there, but whatever. Uh, one single Longhorn, the quarterback, Sam Ellinger, he stayed on the field for the song. The picture circulated after the game. The coach, Tom Herman, he told the media he respects that the players don't want to stay on the field. But then days later, the athletic director, Christel Conti, sent out his weekly email to fans in which he wrote, quote, I have had many conversations with our head coaches outlining my expectations that our team show appreciation for our university fans and supporters by standing together as a unified group for the eyes while we work through this issue. Are the players part of Del Conte's Imagine University? And is working through the issue just attending a committee meeting? The Eyes of Texas is a song swimming in racism, and I believe that a lot of people probably didn't know this before the players drew attention to it this summer, though this is not the first time that this has been addressed publicly. But let's just give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I'm feeling good today. Let's just say they didn't know. But they know now. We all now know about the song's roots, and you can't claim ignorance about it anymore. And yet these men, these white men in charge, have shown that they just don't care that this song is racist and that black students are uncomfortable with the school's continued embrace of it. They know now, and they don't care. That's terrible. It's bullshit. I want to burn it. Burn. Burn. A new investigative report on the state of women's football in Chile was released this week by CPER, a news outlet, and appreciation due to the three authors, students of journalism. It details really harrowing cases. They begin with four, a kinesiologist at a top tier club that sexually abused dozens of players. A former coach of the women's national team who was dismissed for abuse, now working at the under 16 section of a top flight club. A former coach of Copa Libertadores Femenina that sexually harassed minors. The National Professional League in Chile, which is called the ANFP, has been sitting on this for years. And the Women's Union, ANHUF, a really brave organization, has been fighting so hard to have some structural response to this, some real governance. And in July, they met with the ministers of sport, labor, and gender equity. I know because I was there and demanded that there was some sort of investigation into this. Basically, nothing has been done. And I know that Chile is not the center of world sports, but they have done so much to spark Latin American women's football. We saw it in the 2019 World Cup. They've been examples and models of feminism. The ANFP needs to be disciplined by Comebol, by FIFA, and by the Chilean government, most of all, these women need our solidarity, and I want to burn the fact that absolutely nothing has been done to help the women who are suffering under these predators and to discipline the organization that lets it go on. Burn. Burn. Lindsay. Yeah, this is a big one and uh, a trigger warning to um, survivors of domestic abuse. This might be triggering. I don't know how many of you remember the Lauren McCluskey case. Lauren McCluskey was a track star at the University of Utah who warned police officers six times in the 10 days before she died about concerns about an ex-boyfriend and her safety. Um, And none of that mattered because he murdered her in 2018. Um, Well, recent investigation, I have to give a shout out to Courtney Tanner of the Salt Lake City Tribune, whose work and investigation into this um, has been phenomenal. But days before McCluskey was killed, a University of Utah police officer, one who was supposed to be investigating 
her and keeping her safe instead was showing off explicit photos that McCluskey had taken of herself to at least three of his male co-workers. One staffer recalled that this officer, Miguel Darris, commented specifically about getting to look at these photos whenever he wanted. Utah, the state, did a report that confirmed the Tribune's original reporting, and those findings were released earlier this year. However, this week, the Salt Lake County District Attorney Sam Gill said that that officer will not face criminal charges for showing off those explicit photos. He believes that the officer's actions were reckless, but said there is no Utah law for addressing this type of police misconduct. We realized there was no real statute we could use for this case, Gill said. We're incensed. It was inappropriate, but there's not a statute. There's nothing we can do. There was a chance that Maybe they could use revenge porn law in Utah. However, that statute requires proof that the person in the image was harmed. McCluskey, however, is dead. So that is impossible. And members of the person's family being hurt, like McCluskey's parents, doesn't count. So I want to burn all of that shit directly into the ground. Burn. After all that burning and terribleness, let's switch gears a little bit to celebrate some of the good things happening in sports that are being done by some real champions. So for this week's Fire Lord, who is it, Jessica? The Los Angeles Lakers under Jeannie Buss are the first female-controlled ownership to win an NBA championship. And I get the Sparklers of the Week. After nearly a year of inactivity and dissolution of their league, the Colombian Women's Professional League will resume play starting next week in the Mayor League. This has come only as a result of persistent media campaigns, political lobbying, and tremendous solidarity. Check out our interview with Vanessa Cordova to talk about how the Colombian women have tackled this. And can I get a drum roll? Lindsay, who is the torchbearer of this week? Yes, uh, USA Hockey's Megan Duggan has retired after 14 years with the national team. That included seven world championships, three Olympic medals, two silvers, and one historic gold. And she's also one of the leaders of the fight for equity in hockey. We're really excited to see what comes next for Megan. And in dark times, what's good in our world is even more important than ever. So what have we got that's good for you, Linz? Um, We're going real basic here, real simple. But some of you know I'm still in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm from D.C. And I only bought like one bag of clothes from D.C. to Greensboro. And I'm now, you know, I'm going on nearly a month here. So I treated myself to a brand new oversized flannel yesterday and it is so warm and cozy and big and I love it so much and I might just wear it every day. And I also have to say we did our fireside chat with our patrons on Friday night and that was incredible. So thank you all who were able to join us. Um, 
if you want to become our patron so you can participate in that stuff, you know, patreon.com slash burn it all down. But we're just so, so grateful for all of you and seeing your some of your faces and getting to hear your voices really made my entire week. And for me, it is the Fair Network's Football People Weeks. It is a small grant program. And all around the world, there are some amazing activities going on, even in the face of COVID. There are, for example, football tournaments that are happening with people with disabilities in Peru, in Trujillo, trying to get people moving and connected in a safe way. And I admire all of them. And it's been beautiful to see. And... Burn It All Down is also participating in the Football People Weeks conference that's coming this week. So check it out and we'll have a thread about it. Jessica. Yeah, so I voted this week. I was very excited. Not only do I live in a state that is famous for its voter suppression, so it always kind of feels like a radical act to be able to cast your vote. But the county that I live in, they announced this week that they registered 97% of the people who are eligible to register to vote this year. So that just feels like it feels like I'm part of something that feels good. We'll see. But that was a nice feeling. And then this week I made another spoon cake. I feel like it's an important update. I have made some scones. And then last night I made some brownies. I have just been like really, maybe that's what I should have said at the top of the show. I'm just really, (laughs) um, baked goods are getting me through. Baking and Jane Austen. I feel like they so often go together. It's really like a a regular part of um, survival. We're all cliches and I'm here for it. I'm here for it. (laughs) And those good things are also helping us get through what is a kind of lull in some of the sports action, but we are going to be watching the World Series. And also, sadly, I will be tuning in for Barcelona versus Madrid in men's football because I haven't yet finished therapy. And also the UEFA women's tournament is going on. So that's pretty cool. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, especially more in October, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by the wizard Martin Kessler and Shelby Weldon, the extraordinaire, does our website and social media. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, any place where you get your podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We're on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, for previous episodes, transcripts, and links to show notes. From there, you can email us directly or go shopping at our Teespring store. And it has links to our Patreon. As always, we want to give a huge shout out and emotive feelings towards our patrons. It is only because of you that we can keep going. Ever, evergreen, thank you.